Thank you, ladies, for that wonderful song in your Bibles. Uh, we're going to be going to the book of Exodus. You know I'm teasing. Uh, we're going to the book of, what's it called? Matthew, chapter number, yeah, Matthew 10. People that maybe are newer here are like, how did they know that? Matthew 10, but we are in verse 5, and we're going to go down through verse 15, so yeah. We only preached nine sermons in verse 1 through 5, so we're moving a little quicker here this morning. But it's been a joy for me to personally just study through the lives of these 12 apostles, and I trust it was the same for you. Verse 5, the Bible says, These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses, nor script for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. And into whatsoever city or town ye shall enter, inquire who is worthy, and there abide till you go thence. And when you come into a house, salute it, and if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it, but if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart out of the house or city, shake off the dust of of your feet. But that, that's not the Jesus that people would think of, is it? Verse 15, if you'd read with me. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Pretty astonishing statement, right? Father, we are so thankful. God, this joy of being saved is beyond what we can even grasp this morning. And then to be able to assemble with people that love the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that those who've come today have valued you and your word more than a bed and rest. That they desired to hear from you. Lord, that's a weighty task upon this preacher. And I pray that, God, they would not hear of me, but they would hear of the word of God today. And, and that your word would be our wisdom, our light, our understanding, our salvation. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the spiritual truths that you have for us today. God, I pray that you would allow us to be found faithful as we examine areas of faithfulness that can challenge all of our lives. I pray that they would be applied to us. And if anyone today doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would understand the gravity of what they are hearing today, that they may see their need of salvation, be saved, and that, that you would bring them to that reality. We ask now your blessing, and we ask it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Man, you may be seated. Last time I preached, I felt like I was preaching from a boat. I had, I think, an inner ear infection, and praise God, that went away, so now I feel like I can move around a little bit. So um, today we return to Matthew 10, and it's such a joy to be able to work through this chapter, because if you notice, uh, if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, and know that all the black and red letters are all the words of God, right? And so... But we see here that Jesus Christ is giving them 
his instructions for the task that he has now called them to. And it has been in God's infinite wisdom to choose to present the most glorious and the most exalted of earth's truths that could ever be given to earth, I should say, heaven's truths given to earth. And he chose to serve that to man in the most humble means. God has exalted in using humble means to perform the greatest of tasks. He has chosen to use the Davids to defeat the Goliaths. Uh, It is when we are weak, then we are strong. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, it is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Humbling yourself like a child, he said, is how you enter into the kingdom of heaven and is how you become great in the eyes of God. Jesus rejoiced in Matthew eleven twenty five that the Father would conceal the eternal truths from the wise and prudent and that he would reveal them unto babes. James declared that God has chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith. Paul declared in the first New Testament book written to a church in 1 Corinthians 1.27 that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and he has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are haughty and the base things of the world and the things that are despised hath God chosen, yea, the things which are not to bring to not things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence." Paul rejected trying to present the gospel in some attractive manner. He intentionally went against that. 1 Corinthians 2, 1, he says, I, brethren, when I came to you, came not in excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. He said, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he says, and I was with you and weakness and in fear and in much trembling. If you understood the Greek culture at Corinth at that time, that would have been the most unattractive thing for them. I mean, men of, of, of poise, men of, of, of personal fortitude, people that were good speakers of great oratory skills were attractive. This was the worst marketing idea you could have come up with. And he chose to present the glorious gospel in the weakest of manners. He said, I was in weakness and fear and trembling in my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. What I find today is people will say this, uh, you know, what are you looking for in a church? Well, I'm looking for a church and it's, and it's kind of the pizzazz churches, the, you know, the, the, the glamour churches, the churches that are just a little more stylish, a little more cool that, that, that have, have lights that are just a little more dynamic, have sounds, and, and, and it's all about this external stuff. I mean, if you saw the Apostle Paul, you would say, no one's going to listen to you if you look like that. I mean, no one's going to listen to you if you present it like that. And Paul would say, it's never been about me. You, you have a wrong focus, friend. And I think in our world of America today, that we are so concerned about the externals, and it's crept into churches that churches now are more concerned about the external than the power of God. And he tells them that, but I preached in the demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You should not leave a church thinking how great a person is or how wonderful their facilities are or their light shows, but you should leave recognizing how great God is. And this is exactly what we see in Matthew 10, isn't it? 
I mean, we've examined for nine sermons the lives of 12 apostles. And, and you should have been profoundly impacted in clarif- the, with the clarity of the truth that these were just normal men. Jesus, what, what's interesting, chose 12 guys that were purposefully not among the religious group of the day. They were not in the Jewish Bible institutes, if you would. These were guys that were fishermen. These were people that were even zealots, strong political people. These were people that were even uh, tax collectors. They were the enemies of the Jews. Matthew was a tax collector. These were just normal guys, and they were also flawed. I mean, they they struggled with faith. They said stupid stuff sometimes. I don't know if I should use that word, but uh, they, they said things that were just wrong, but they went all in for Jesus. They, they, they failed at times, but they failed falling forward, didn't they? And, and, and they sunk when they got in the water like Peter. They, 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 Peter rebukes Jesus. I mean, Thomas denied that Jesus would even rise from the dead after they said he'd risen from the dead. They struggled to believe Jesus said, there's many things I want to say to you, but you're not even able to receive them yet. I mean, you're just dull of hearing. But it was these men, these humble vessels that God presented the most glorious truths. And so... I think it's important for us to understand today, it's, not, it's never been about us. It's always been about the Lord. It's not the, the, it's not the glamour of the vessel. It's the glamour of God. It's the glory of God. And we have this treasure in earthen vessel that the excellency, the power may be of God and not of us. And so this morning, we transition from the men to the message, from the workers to the work. In, in verse 1 through 5, we learned about these guys, and now in verse 5 through the rest of the chapter, we're going to learn about the mission that Christ sends them on. And this, this has a twofold reality to it, why Jesus sends them out, because it's a short-term mission. He sends these 12 out on a short-term, probably just for several weeks. Later, in the other gospel accounts, it talks about where he sent out another 70 men, and, and he sends these guys out uh, again. But today, I want to look at what this short-term mission that he sends them on, and it's really twofold. First, to bring the gospel to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and secondly, to prepare them for the ministry after he leaves. We're going to see five keys to faithfully ministering for the Lord, and he gives them some specific assignments here in Matthew chapter number 10, verse 5 through 15, but, but there are general principles that will apply to all of us today. Because I believe that all of us that are truly saved, that that desire to honor Christ, long one day to stand before God and hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I mean, whatever you accomplish in life, isn't that the victory? I mean, isn't, no matter what you do, could you imagine standing before God and Him saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant? You may have feel, you may feel like you have failed in different areas, but if if you have his approval, then that is success. And, and today I want to look at five keys to being a faithful minister, to, to faithfully carry out what God has called us to do. And the first one of those is faithful ministry requires obedience. Verse number five, it says, These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go. The word sent forth is apostello. And it's where we get the word apostle from. It's, it means to send out, like on a mission, uh, that you would be an appointed representative. 
And I think it's incredible that Jesus sends these 12 imperfect men that were so, in so many ways unqualified to be his representatives, to go on his behalf. And I mean, there was so much they still needed to learn. There were still so many things. I mean, by Matthew 16, Peter rebukes Jesus for saying he's going to go and die in Jerusalem and be crucified. I mean, this is six chapters pre that. I mean, there's a lot they still needed to learn. So just understand here today, we are to be his representatives in the world even when we don't have our PhDs. Right? Even when you don't know everything in the scriptures. Well, you know, I'm not sure quite how God could use me. There's so many things I still need to learn. Well, whatever you learn, you need to begin to live, and then you need to be able to share. Amen? Amen? So, I don't know about you, but I want that to be what is said of me, that I would be one that God sends, that He would use my life, that He would use your life. I want to be like Isaiah who says, Lord, here am I, send me. And if that's your heart's desire today, to be used by God, then, then make that your prayer today. Make it your cry in your heart that you say, Lord, I don't have much to offer, but what I have, I give to you. And Lord, here am I, send me to do whatever you would want my life to accomplish. And whatever impact that God would allow your life to have, there's no greater impact that you could have than when God is at the driver's seat of your life. And it says here in verse 5, and he commanded them, saying, the word commanded there is an interesting word, but it, but it means to, and, and, and there's multiple ways it can be translated, but it, but, it, but it is most generally translated in the New Testament as a command, as, as a, it, w- it would be used in those days as a military command, like a superior in the military giving an inferior a directive. And here the Lord sends them as representative, representatives and he commands them to this. So be my representative and I am commanding you to do this. Our Christian life can be summarized most fully by one question. Do we lovingly fulfill what God has called us to do? Do we obey his commands? Are you obedient to God? John chapter 14 verse 15, Jesus said it. Very clearly, if you love me, keep my commandments. I had a lady one time who left our church because she felt like we teach too much theology and doctrinal things. And I said, um, she said, you know, you're always getting up, you know, talking about the commands of the Lord and all these things. It's all about love. It's just about love. And I said, you know, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? Jesus said in John 14 later, they that love me, keep my commandments as I kept my father's commandments and I have loved him. So love is not expressed in some mushy, gushy way, such as Hallmark likes to say, but it's, it's in obedience. Love is a verb in the Bible. It's, it's not an adjective. Love is action. It's not feeling. Aren't you thankful that God loved us with his actions and not just a feeling? <laughs> and so let us do the same to him. Let's not just have some emotional feeling. Um, it's a whole lot harder to live out the songs we sing than to sing the songs. Verse 5, he goes on and says, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any of the city of the Samaritans enter ye not. Did anybody expect the command to start out that way? None of us did, right? That's why nobody could have ever written the New Testament. I mean, God is the, has to be the author. It's just constantly going against the grain of what we would have thought. 
So the, so the first thing he says is, I'm excluding you from going to certain people. I mean, was this just the Jewish gospel? It seems strange, doesn't it? But I would have to first ask, does the Lord have the right to send his message to whoever he wants it to go to? Does he have the right? Does that make him unfair? You understand, fair is us all dying and being separated from God in the eternal hell. Anything above that is grace, isn't it? So first of all, God has chose to send his message to the Jews based solely upon God. It wasn't the Jews like, can you please bring us the gospel? I mean, if that was the case, they wouldn't have crucified him, right? It wasn't their longing, it was his longing to bring it to them. Now, now there are practical reasons the Lord does this, and let me just highlight a few, though. First of all, the 12 disciples were all Jews. The Lord called 12 men who were Jews to go first and preach to the Jews. And that day, they were also Gentiles, which were non-Jews. We're Gentiles, okay? We're, we're, there, there may be some Jews among us, but I, not very often. And, and, and a, a Samaritan, which he refers to here, was a half-Jew, half-Gentile. So somewhere along the lines, and this goes back to the Assyrian captivity in 700 B.C. when they, the Jews married among the, the Assyrians and, and they called these half-Jew, half-Gentiles, they called them Samaritans. And the Jews hated Samaritans. I mean, the Jews were like, if you're a Gentile, bad luck on you. You know, you're just born as a Gentile. But Samaritans, somebody chose to get married and have children and, 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 and they, they despised Samaritans. And, and Samaritans also despised the Jews. But, but also the Samaritans had caused some ruffling among the Jews because just a, a couple decades before this, the Samaritans went into the Jewish temple and threw dead men's bones on the altar and tried to desecrate their temple. So there was, some, there was already a rift there, but that even in, in, enticed it more. But, but to the Jews in that day, I mean, they, they really were outside of the realm of understanding the Gentiles and, and they were so separated culturally from the Samaritans, uh, both religiously, socially, and culturally. So the Lord starts their ministry among those they could relate to. Among those they knew their language, they knew their culture, they knew their people. And I believe that's where you and I need to start. Evangelism needs to start in our life among those that we are familiar with. It's not that you get saved and you run off to a mission field. It's not that you get saved and you run off to a group of people that you have no association with. That is not God's design. God's design is that you would start with those even in your own home. The first person that was evangelized in John chapter 1, after Andrew met Jesus, he went and evangelized his brother Peter. You start among your own. Don't we find that in the book of Acts? Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You shall be witnesses unto me. Where do you start at? In Jerusalem. Start there. And then you go to Judea. That's the southern part of Jerusalem. And then you go to Samaria. That's the middle portion of Israel. Uh, Judea is the southern part of Israel. I mean, and, and Samaria is the middle part of Israel. Galilee is the northern part. And then he says into the uttermost parts of the earth. And so uh, we start locally and you work your way out from there. That's God's design. That's how it's supposed to be. Even Paul referred to himself as the apostle to the Gentiles, but he would always start in the synagogues, didn't he? He always preached among those that he was familiar with. Now God has chosen, secondly, he, I believe, uh, has them go, first of all, to the Jews because God chose Israel 
to be a light to the world. Listen, Israel was not to be a cul-de-sac of the gospel. They were to be a highway for the gospel. God went to them first. The gospel had to start with someone. The Jews were the ones who received the law. They were the ones who received the word of God. They were the ones who, the, the Messiah was born as a Jew. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 49 verse 6 that they were to be a light to the world. It was never God's intention just to bring the, the salvation to the Jews. It was that the Jews would be a light of salvation to the world. And, and they had a special place in the plan of God. And so it was to start with the Jews, and then they were to be the representatives. I mean, don't we even see that in the, in the, in the uh, seven-year tribulation? 144,000 are to be Jewish men that would be representatives of the gospel to the world. Now, Jesus had already, up to this point, uh, ministered to both Gentiles and Samaritans. I mean, in John 4, he went to the city of Samaria, right? Uh, to a woman of Sychar, a Gentile or a, a Samaritan woman, uh, and, and led her to Christ. She was the first person he revealed that he was the Messiah to, a Samaritan. And then he takes the gospel, uh, he, he brings uh, his mercy in Matthew chapter 8 to a Roman centurion who says, My servant is sick. And, and Jesus went and healed that uh, centurion servant, and, and that man was a Gentile. And so, uh, so it was to start with them. It was to go to the Jew first. Romans 1.16, Paul says it this way. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It starts with them and it extends out from there. Again, they had a foundation of the word of God. They had the Old Testament. Samaritans and the, uh, the Gentiles did not. So you go to those who have a base of understanding. You start there and you work your way out. Thirdly, if they had gone to a Samaritan or a Gentile city first, the Jews of that day would not have believed them. They would not have believed Jesus to be the Messiah because the hatred toward the Samaritans and Gentiles was so strong. Do you remember in Acts chapter number 10, Peter struggled to go to the home of Cornelius, didn't he? I mean, that's all the way in Acts 10. I mean, they just really didn't make a dent into the... Samaritan or the, uh, the Gentiles until a man named the Apostle Paul came and preached the gospel to them. I mean, Peter reached Cornelius in his household because God sent him there, but, but it was just to the Jews first. All the new first Christian, uh, you know, in Acts chapter 2, those were all Jews that got saved. Now, you need to understand that uh, this was a temporary mandate. It is no longer the mandate to just go to the Jews. It was at the end of Matthew's gospel in Matthew 28, verse 19. He says, go therefore and teach all nations. So the gospel at the end is to go not just to the Jews, but now to all nations. Matthew Henry said the Gentiles must not have the gospel brought them till the Jews have refused it. The restraint on the apostles was only in their first mission. Then in verse 6, he says, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Um, Jesus even referred his ministry in, in, in Matthew 15, 24, when a woman of Canaan, a, a Gentile woman, came to him seeking uh, aid. Jesus said, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
There were many lost sheep. There were many unbelievers who needed the gospel among the Jews. And Israel was like a sheep and that had wandered astray. And the Lord graciously sought to bring them into the fold of God. Now, according to the gospel of Mark, Jesus sent them out two by two. Mark 6, verse 5, the parallel account of this in Matthew 10, it says, He called unto him his twelve and began to send them forth two and two, gave them power over unclean spirits. So he sends them out to the Jews, not to the Samaritans or the Gentiles at first, and he sends them out two by two. I think we can learn from that that when you minister, you need to have ministry partners. If you're going to be a faithful witness, you need to have people that you minister with uh, for encouragement. Ministry can be discouraging. Uh, nobody knows that until they begin to minister. You ever teach a class? You ever, who's ever begun to mentor people? And then you find out this is a lot harder than I thought. You, you, you start a D group up. You, you're like, how's your D group going? Oh, it's going good the first week. Second week, uh, half the people read. The third week, nobody read. It's, it's, oh, it's not easy, is it? The white preacher has white hair, right? Uh, it, it's hard. It's, it, pe- people um, are just people, nothing more. God's got nothing less. And, and, and I always smile because I see the impatience that grows on people who begin to minister to other people because they're like, you know what? Well, I don't know what's wrong with them. And they get all worked up. And I'm like, yeah, I remember two years ago when I led you to Christ. And remember how you were? And you know, now, now you get to, get to receive what you gave to me. And, uh, but you get to begin to see that, right? I mean, we, we raise our children. We're like, man, I can't believe my kids, you know. And, and we, we can see the weaknesses in our children sometimes. But God would say, hey, that's exactly how you were to your parents. And so there, there's encouragement that comes into, there's also accountability, there's strength. And so just understand this, if you, if you visit, if you go out and win people to Christ, if you're going out to share the gospel and you're like, man, my neighbors need to be saved, bring, have, have a spiritual leader in, in the church, have a friend, go with you. you. There's strength in numbers. Secondly, faithful ministry requires the right message. Verse, 70, verse 5 and 6, he tells them where to go. Verse 7, he tells them what to preach. He says, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what is the kingdom of heaven? Now, the kingdom of heaven, there is also the phrase, the kingdom of God. I had a man ask me years ago, is there a difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? Actually, I've had several people ask me that. Well, the kingdom of God is used 68 times in 10 different New Testament books. 68 times in 10 different New Testament books. The word kingdom of heaven is used 32 times only in the book of Matthew. Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience and he refers to it as the kingdom of heaven. I believe they are synonymous and they refer to the same thing. Jesus used them interchangeably such as in Matthew 19, 23 and 4 and other places. The word kingdom is from the Greek word basilia, and it just means the realm in which the sovereign king rules. Broadly speaking, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is the rule of the sovereign God over all the universe. Psalm 103 verse 19, as the Bible says, the Lord hath prepared his throne in the heaven and his kingdom ruleth over all. One day the Lord Jesus Christ will set his kingdom up on this physical earth 
and rule and reign for 1,000 years. This is known as the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ spoken of in the book of Isaiah as well as in Revelation 20 and many other Old Testament passages. Many in Jesus' day believed the kingdom would be set up immediately. They did not understand the church age. But Jesus made clear the kingdom at that time was not a material kingdom. John 18, 36, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. He said, If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight for me. He was talking to Pilate. Throughout the New Testament, the kingdom spoke of the rule of God in the hearts of people. Getting saved is for Christ to come and be the king of your soul, the king of your heart. Luke 17, 20, it says, when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. You won't see it in a physical manifestation. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is where? It's within you. So Jesus preached that to become a citizen of the eternal kingdom starts, my friend, with receiving the king in your heart. This involves two things. Repentance of your sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to be a kingdom citizen, you must turn from your sin, turn from disbelief, turn in faith to God and in following him. Mark chapter 1 verse 14 says this, Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Notice what it entailed. And saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and and believe the gospel. I'm amazed when people tell me repentance, you don't have to repent to be saved. That is a false gospel and you need to reject it. You believe that? Did Jesus believe repentance was part of the gospel? Repent and believe the gospel. Notice when the disciples went to preach, they preached the gospel. The word gospel just means good news, euangelion. It's the good news that God has saved us from our sins, that there is a way to be delivered from damnation and hell, that you don't have to die for your sins, that Jesus Christ paid the price and you can be saved today. And Jesus taught the way into the kingdom is narrow. Matthew 7, 13, he says, straight is the gate and narrow is the way. The Bible teaches those who choose to remain in sin will not be part of the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, those are people who have sex outside of marriage. Nor idolaters, those who put things in front of God. Nor adulterers, those who have sex with people that are married. Nor effeminate, the word can also be translated, nor homosexuals. You know, there's people who will leave Lighthouse because I preach on that. I wonder if they want me to cut that out of the Bible. Would you rather me preach America's gospel or the Bible's gospel? Do you want to stand before God with an Americanized homosexual gospel? Or do you want to stand before God with the word of the living God? And do you think it's more loving to affirm people in their sin or to call people to righteousness? 
I can tell you it is to hate someone to tell them that you are okay in your sin. Be not deceived. You live in sexual sin, whether it's heterosexual, homosexual, idolatry, effeminate, nor abuses himself with mankind, nor thieves. If you want to be a thief, don't plan on going to heaven. Covetous, drunkards, you know, being an alcoholic is not a disease. They call it a disease because they don't believe in sin. Know that. (laughs) Nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. He says, be not deceived. They're not going to heaven. I mean, Galatians 5, 22 and 3 says the same thing, 19 through, 20, uh, 19 through 23. So they went to preach the gospel. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean when you get saved that you never sin. But it means that you don't have a lifestyle of sin. That this is not the practice of your life. That, that, that you, you are not known as being one who lives in this. So they went to preach the gospel, the good news that the kingdom of God was available and could be entered into by faith in the Lord and repenting from your sin. That is offered to you this morning. (laughs) I mean, there's a way to have your sins forgiven and to have everlasting life in heaven. It's offered to you today. There's nothing greater that you could receive than that. Also, notice that those who go and proclaim the Lord's message need to realize it is the Lord's message. It is not theirs. We don't invent the message. We don't determine the message. We simply proclaim the message. We're not chefs. We're waiters. And don't mess up the meal that the Lord has prepared, right? That's why we preach expositionally. That's why we preach verse by verse. You know, sometimes people say, you know, I'm gonna, I want to preach a message on this. And sometimes it could be a biblical truth, and that's fine. But sadly, some, you know, I was, I was uh, if I want to get my stress up, I go on Facebook, and I had to go on there for something. I forget what I had to, but I, I had a buddy on there I went to college with, and, and he was, <laughs> his, his sermons, he did a whole series, and it was on movies at, and, and whatever his church is called, movies at like Graceway or something, and, and he was preaching that Sunday on the Sandlots. So the sandlots. So where, where do you go in the Bible to preach on the sandlots? The, the, the next week was on Star Wars. And, and hundreds of people come and listen to this stuff. And then at the end, I, I, I just had to get my blood pressure up. So I, I, I was like, how do you even do this? And, uh, and then, you know, to close out, they have an invitation with ramped up music and he's, you know, getting them all lathered up. And then just, just if you want to go to heaven, just pray this prayer and, and you know, repeat these. And, and it, I mean, it's energized. Everybody's going and just repeat these words. And they repeat, if you repeated that, raise your hand. And they raise your hand, you're going to heaven. But you might want to use the word repentance there. You might want to call them out of sin unto Christ. You might want to talk to them about the lordship of Jesus Christ. You might want to let them know that, uh, count the cost before you, you receive that message. Oh, there's none of that. Easy believism is what that's called, and, and, and it's an easy message. It's very palatable. You know, Jesus is here for you. It's like, a, you know, you, you rub the lamp and God gives you what you want, that he's all about your life. 
Jesus said, you want to come after me? It starts with denying yourself, and then it's dying to yourself if you want to follow me. This is not an easy road. It is narrow. It is only one person entering in at a time. This is a restricted way. People say it's easy to be saved. No, it's very hard to be saved. It's very hard. Is it hard to believe that you're not good enough to get to heaven? Is it hard to believe that you're so wicked and sinful that you'll be separated from God eternally in hell? That may not be hard for you as a Christian, but you go out and preach that message to the world, that's very hard. Is it hard to repent and turn from your sin and turn to Christ to make Him the Lord of your life, to have Him sit on the throne of your life, you be the passenger, He be the driver? Is that easy? Are you kidding me? It's not perfection, but it's surrender. There's so many rabbit trails right now that I'm being tempted with I, I have a lot to go over still but I'm telling you friends we, we have got to preach a biblical message we have to preach the right truth and it starts in scripture and it's not us coming up with a message and finding text to fit our message it goes to the word of God and you preach what that says thirdly faithful ministry requires the power of God Verse 8, he says, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely ye have received, freely give. Now, in the, from chapter uh, 8 and 9 and early in chapter 10, we talked about, and you can go back and listen to those, what the Bible teaches about healing, and, and those were apostolic gifts. I do not believe there are people today that have the power to heal. Does God still heal? Yes, He can do whatever He wants but I can tell you, the healing that supposedly goes on today is not the healing that went on in the Bible. I preached on this stuff thoroughly, and I would just say this. In the New Testament, they healed 100% of the people who came to them. People today pay large sums of money, and they walk away as sick as they were before. So, so they were given power. Now, do you remember when God sent Moses to Egypt and he says, I want you to go lead my people out of Egypt? Remember what Moses said? He said, they're not going to believe me. And so God says, well, then what's in your hand? He said, a, a staff. And he says, throw it on the ground. And he threw it on the ground. What did it turn into? A serpent. And then he, then he said what many of us would never have wanted to hear. He's like, now grab it. <laughs> He's like, you're going to doubt me again, Moses? <laughs> Grabs a stick, you know, a snake. It turns back into a stick. And then he says, uh, put your hand into your shirt, pulls it out, it's leprous, puts it back in, brings it out, it's, uh, it's cured. He says, I'll give you a third sign. He says, go down, go down to the river there, and he says, get a cup of water and pour it out on land, it'll turn into blood. He says, they will believe these, and these were, these were signs authenticating him. Because how, do you, how would you believe Moses? Oh, God spoke to you, right, Moses? But then after he does all that stuff, you're like, oh, God spoke to you, Moses. Now, it's critical to understand that at this time in Matthew 10, the New Testament was not written. They didn't have a Bible. They had the Old Testament. The New Testament affirms that John the Baptist was the Elijah of the Old Testament that was to come. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Malachi, the, old, the old, last Old Testament book ends with saying, uh, Elijah will come before that great and terrible day of the Lord. I believe there's also... Eschatological implications of that is maybe Moses and Elijah would be the two witnesses spoken of in Revelation. But 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 Moses, we know that 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 spoke of John the Baptist according to Matthew eleven thirteen. But the New Testament tells us that the Jews would require a sign, and perhaps that started even with Moses coming with signs, and they're like, you know, if you to authenticate somebody, they have to have signs. 
Uh, and so 1 Corinthians 1.22, Paul even reiterated the Jews require a sign. Matthew 12.38, they came to Jesus. Master, we want to see a sign from you. They, they kept wanting to see signs from him. I mean, he's doing all these miracles. He's like, what else do you need? So Jesus came doing many miracles for the purpose of verifying that he was indeed the Messiah. You need to understand this. There's only three times in history that miracles were really done in a vast way. When Moses went into Egypt, those miracles, and Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, Elijah and Elisha, who represented the Old Testament prophets, they did miracles, but outside of them too, in the Old Testament, you don't see hardly many miracles ever being done. And then you have during the New Testament time. It's not that they, John the Baptist never is said to have done one miracle. Not one. Never spoke in tongues, never did any of that. Nobody spoke in tongues in any of the other New Testament books outside of the book of 1 Corinthians where they're being reprimanded for it. So so just understand, this was a limited exposure of miracles for the purpose of validating this is the message of God. And what better way would Satan prostitute the true message than to bring this charismatic realm with all these supposed signs and miracles and tongues and to have the worst theology among Christendom? It's a prostitution of the truth. So, and I grew up in those charismatic churches, so I know very well what they teach. Jesus came doing miracles for the purpose of verifying his Messiahship. John 5.36, he says, I have greater witness than that of John, for the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And so Christ did miracles for that purpose. Nicodemus came to Jesus and says, Master, we know that you're a teacher sent from God, for no man can do these works except the Father be with him. I mean, this has to be the hand of God. Now, we see these miracles by the apostles later in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says, Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. The mighty deeds produce wonders that were a sign that they were an apostle and messenger sent from God. And so not only did the miracles confirm the message, but the kind of miracles say something significant about the character of God. I mean, he could have given them the same signs, couldn't he? He could have said, hey, I want to take, take the staff in your hand, throw it down, raise it back up, uh, put your hand in your coat, pull it out, it'll be leper, he, lepers. He could have given them the... You would have thought that he would have given them the same miracles that he gave to Moses. Wouldn't that make sense? I mean, wouldn't that be a validation? They'd have been like, well, this has to be the message from God. But what is extremely interesting is the, the kind of miracles that he chooses to do. Notice what they are in verse number 8. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, and cast out devils. What, what does that say about the character of God? What does that say? That he didn't just want to manifest his power to validate them. He wanted to use his power in a supremely compassionate way. That God is a compassionate God, full of mercy. His tender mercies, the Bible calls them. You understand that Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. God cares about your pain. He doesn't just do things just to reveal his power. He would choose to use his power in a way that would manifest his compassion as well. 
The life of Christ displayed such incredible compassion on people. Jesus healed every single person that came to him. Matthew 15, 30, great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet. And he healed them, insomuch the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb speak, the maimed to behold, the lame to walk, the blind to see. They glorified the God of Israel. Notice verse 32. He's so compassionate, he heals everyone, and this is all through the New Testament. Then Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they've continued with me three days, have nothing to eat. I will not send them away fasting lest they faint away. So he made sure they had food. I mean, this is the compassion that God shows us. Friend, I don't know what situation you're in today. I don't know what physical ailment. I don't know what pain you're going through, what loss you've had recently. But you need to know there is a God who is of tender compassion, whose mercies do not fail, and he cares about your pain. Number four, faithful ministry requires God's provision. Look what he says at the end of verse number uh, eight. He says, freely ye have received, freely give. Now, how were they to be provided for in their work of the ministry? First of all, they were not to charge people for their miracles. Imagine how much money you could make to heal somebody's child. Somebody's dying. If your child was dying, how much money would you pay to save your child from death? They... they they were not to be charlatans, uh, as in their day, they were charlatans masquerading as, as messengers of God and exorcists in those days, pretending as though they could cast out devils and they were charging people great sums of money. Jesus says, I don't want you to be like them. You don't charge for this. He tells his disciples they were to minister freely because they had been given that power freely. And so... Do you remember Simon Magus, Simon the Magician in Acts 8? He offered money to have the power that Peter had. Peter said, your money perish with you. You know, one sign of a false apostle and a false teacher is that they have a love of money. You know, one of the qualifications for a pastor is that they would be void of the love of money. The love of money is the root of all evil, and you cannot have a love of money and be a pastor and be an elder to be a leader of God's people in the church. 1 Peter 5.2 tells us, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre or dishonest gain, but of a ready mind. Do it willingly. So he wanted to protect them from turning ministry into a money-hungry venture. Judas must have hated that. So, how did... I mean, in their day, do you remember when they had Passover, the most holy day of the year, they turned that into a money-hungry scheme, and Jesus goes in and flips over the ch money changer's table. You ever watch TBN praise-a-thons, as I did growing up? It was Benny Hinn who said this, quote, I believe that God is healing people while they're making a pledge tonight. There are people getting healed making a pledge. Make a pledge, make a gift, because that's the only way you're going to get your miracle. As you give, the miracle will begin. His scams bring in an estimated $100 million a year. Is that insane? A hundred just fleecing the people of God. Jesus tells them, don't be like that. So how will they be provided for in their traveling preaching ministry during these 
this season that he called them to go. Matthew 10, 90 says, provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses. Uh, better money belts. These were, these were, they didn't carry around purses, right? They, they, these were things they stored their money in. Verse 10, he says, nor script for your journey, which was like their food bag. Neither two coats. That was their tunic, their outer garment. It was worn for warmth as well as a blanket at night. Neither shoes. You have your sandals, but don't provide extra ones would be the idea. Nor yet staves or staves. This was their staff. Uh, they had a walking stick, but in Mark's parallel account, Jesus says you can take a staff, but it's, it's the idea, don't go out and get extra shoes. Don't go out and get extra food. Don't go out and get extra uh, things. Don't carry a bunch of money. Uh, go with limited resources, what he's telling them. William Barclay writes, he was once again speaking words which were very familiar to the Jew. The Jewish Talmud says, no one is to go to the Temple Mount with staff, shoes, girdle of money, or dusty feet. The idea is when a man entered the temple, he must make it quite clear that he left everything which he had to do with trade and business and worldly affairs behind. Jesus takes that same teaching that was in the Talmud and applies it to them and says, you need to go. You are on a mission and your mission is not to focus on your physical provision, but on the spiritual work at hand. Does that make sense? So, so you're going to be provided for, but, but you need to trust God for that provision. He wanted them to trust him with their, I mean, when God led the people of the nation of Israel out of Egypt, didn't he do that to them? I mean, they had to trust God for uh, their food and water. Now, verse 10, he says, the workman is worthy of his meat. That is the only verse in the New Testament quoted by another New Testament verse. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. The word elders there is another word for pastors. Double honor is talking about financial reimbursement. He says, especially they that labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. Like if you're, you have an ox plowing, uh, you don't want to put a muzzle on him while he's plowing the field so he doesn't eat because he's, he should be able to eat to provide for his abilities to be able to continue to, to, pull, the, to, to, to pull the plow. And he says, uh, and, and he applies that, he says, the labor is worthy of his reward. Jesus didn't work a secular job when he went into the ministry. He was a carpenter up to that day, but when he went into the ministry, people gave to him so that they provided for him. And you see that in Luke chapter 8, verse 1 through 3. Verse 3, it says, in Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, which this would have been a very significant man in that day. And Susanna and many others which ministered unto him or unto Jesus of their substance. Jesus lived off the giving that people gave as he ministered to them. The Bible is very clear that a faithful minister is to be provided for from the ministry. The pattern was established in the Old Testament. You remember the Old Testament priests, the Levites? They, they, they labored in the temple and they lived off of what was given to the temple. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 13, it says this. Do you not know that they which minister about the holy things live of the holy things? He's talking about the Old Testament. And they which wait at the altar are partakers of the altar. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live or make their living of the gospel. I never talk about this, but this is, you know, I don't have another job outside of this. We have multiple staff members that all they do is work here at the church. You say, what do you do? I only work one day a week, right? I only preach on Sunday, so it's really easy. Yeah, right. I've had a lot of jobs, and this is obviously uh, uh, labor. It's a, it's, a, it's a work, but it's a calling, and 
And so, uh, but the Lord has ordained that those that preach the gospel should make their living from that. Now in verse 11, Jesus highlights the importance of being content as they minister. He says in verse 11, And into whatsoever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and there abide till you go thence. So they were to go into a city, inquire who is worthy. The idea is who had a good testimony, who was faithful. You don't want to go stay with somebody who has a bad testimony because they could mar your testimony. So go there, find out who has a good testimony, and stay with them. Because you don't want to go stay with a person in a little cottage, and then somebody from the mansion comes down and says, Hey, you know, Peter and Andrew, why don't you come and stay with me? They're like, oh, that's a pretty nice place. We'll just move up the hill there. And uh, they weren't to do that. They were to be content. Their focus was not to be on their provision and the place they stayed. Their focus was to be on the ministry at hand. So contentment was the idea. Learn to be content. And I think that's such a principle for all of us today. Learn to be content. Don't worry about what your neighbors buy. Don't worry about the new vehicles. Don't worry about all the nice necessities. Uh, Sometimes it's good to get off of um, some of these websites or some of these little apps that you can get on and always focus on something new and something. Don't just go shopping as a hobby and all the husbands said. (laughs) And so uh, probably the wives would say the same thing to the husbands, I guess. But uh, there you go. So, but I just want to say this, be content, be content. 1 Timothy 6, 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world. It's certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and raiment, let us be there with content. You know, contentment's not getting what we want. It's wanting what we have. As Charles Spurgeon rightly said. And then lastly, number five. Faithful ministry requires the right response to those who both receive and reject the gospel. This is interesting. He says in verse 12, And when you come into a house, salute it. If the house be worthy, let your peace be upon it. If it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. What was the common greeting among the Jews in that day? Shalom. And what does shalom mean? Peace. He says, so let your peace come upon it or let your peace return to you. That's why he says that. So, uh, so nowhere does it say at this time that they went and preached in the synagogues. They went house to house. This was a street ministry. They would go to house, they would present the message, and they were, this is, now Jesus was a rabbi, and they would let him come in and teach in the synagogues, but these were just guys. These were like fishermen. They're like, we're not, they didn't, have a, they didn't have a license to come and preach in the synagogues, and so they didn't, they didn't allow them to do that. You know, when I came to start the church in Xenia 13 years ago with eight people, coming on 14 years now, uh, we were just out on the streets all the time, just sharing the gospel, because they didn't have anybody. You know, pastors who take churches over, they, have, they, they don't really understand that reality. But you, I mean, there's nobody here. There wasn't this building. We're meeting in a hotel conference room. Our first nursery was a hotel room. Sometimes on the second floor. You'd come in, it's like, where's the nursery? Yeah, you go up to the second floor, third room on the left. You know, there's a nursery there. Yeah. And, and, and our, our, our first kids class was in the bar area of the stinking restaurant there in the hotel. We'd ask the guy, can you please turn down, you know, Metallica over there? We're trying to teach Jesus over here. It's like 9 o'clock on Sunday morning, and the bartender would get upset with us. I mean, that's where we start. Our, our second building was a fairground dining hall, and the kids' class was in Pig Barn. Couldn't really mess anything up over there, you know? They're like, where's the nursery at? Over there with the animals. I mean, they're over there with the, you know. So... I mean, but they ministered house to house. And he says, when you come in the house, salute it. 
And if, if they received you, then, then the, the implication here is that you would bless that home and the full blessing of God would be upon that. That they would receive the message and you would minister to them. You would give them the message. They would receive that great truth that would bring salvation and blessing. Because on the flip side of that is what he says in verse 14. And whosoever shall re- not receive you nor hear your words when you depart out of that house, shake off the dust of your feet. The idea is they didn't receive your blessing. They didn't receive the message. And so he says, first of all, don't pronounce peace upon those who reject it. He says, if they don't receive you nor hear your words when you depart, shake off the dust of your feet. Don't pronounce a blessing. It's like saying, don't say God bless you because God's not going to bless them. Don't, don't. It's 2 John 10 and 11, the same principles applied to false teachers. He says, if there come any unto you like a Jehovah Witness or Mormon and bring not this doctrine, they don't preach correct about Christ, receive him not into your house, do not bid him Godspeed. It's like, don't say God bless you, for he that biddeth him Godspeed is a partaker in his evil deed. Listen, God's not blessing that guy. You need to warn him, hey, what you're teaching is false, and I am against what you're saying, and, 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 and you're not welcome into this home. I will share the gospel with you. I will tell you of Christ, but you're preaching a false message, and that is damning people's souls. You don't, you don't, you don't befriend that. Second, he says, shake the dust off of your feet if they, if they reject you. Now, in those days, when the Jew left a Gentile country, they would take their sandals off and shake all the dust off. And, and all the Jews knew that. Because they were like, we don't want pagan Gentile dust even coming into Israel. I mean, that's how they viewed it. And he says, shake off the dust of your feet. And the point being, so that when they see you do that, they see that God sees you like you're a Gentile. How you see them is how now God sees you. Judgment's on you now. I mean, this is, I mean, how does Joel Olstein preach that, right? Like, like, what do you do with that? Like, that's the severity of the message, isn't it? Is that, is that easy? You know, when I share the gospel with somebody, I go through the gospel. At the end of it, I'm like, hey, you know, if, you know, God bless you. Have a great day. You rejected the gospel, but, you know, God bless you. If somebody's like, you know what? I don't receive this. I, 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 don't, I don't want to receive this. I'll say, listen, you need to understand how severe this message is. Do you, do you understand that when you stand before God, that you've agreed with me that you would be found guilty as a sinner? And you agreed with me that if you stood before God you would, and, and you were found guilty, you'd be separated from God in a real place called hell, according to Revelation 21. You, and I have gone through all that with them. Then you need to understand that you've rejected that message and you know from my mouth that this is where you will end up. This is what the Bible says. And friend, I care for you and I'd love to sit down and talk with you and I'll pray for you. Now that doesn't mean there's people that, that, that may not understand the gospel, have a lot of questions, and, and you need to sit down and share with them and take time with them. But when they reject the open, clear message of the gospel, they have rejected that full light, then the Bible tells us we are not to consume ourselves to try to browbeat that person into believing it. And he warns us in verse 15, he says, Verily I say unto you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. What's that saying? That's saying that Sodom and Gomorrah, which were cities that were known for being sexual deviants, who were known for homosexually seeking to rape a couple people inside the city that came, that God sent there, these angels, their judgment would be less than the cities who rejected the clear gospel. In other words, rejecting the clear gospel is worse than homosexual rape. 
Is that, is that serious? Does that make what we do here a big deal? This isn't light stuff, is it? I mean, Jesus is the one who said that. Sodom and Gomorrah, I mean, you're telling me their judgment, if they reject the gospel, is going to be worse than Sodom and Gomorrah's? Well, Sodom and Gomorrah didn't have the Bible. They didn't know a lot of these things. So just know today, if you're not saved, if you reject the clear gospel, your judgment cannot get worse. You will face the most severe judgment in eternity. Your sin is the highest because when you hear the truth and you will not accept it, you have chosen to reject mercy and grace at the fullest exposure. That's why I say coming to Lighthouse is dangerous for those who reject because you are, you are knowingly removing that truth from your heart and you are willingly coming under the judgment of God. You're not blessed. You're not blessed. But if you are saved and you hear and receive it, you are the most blessed to be in a place that teaches the Word of God because it leads you into further obedience and further growth. So Christian, are you faithful today? You must be obedient. Start with those you know. Go to your Jerusalems. Bring the right message. Repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in God's power. It is His power that authenticates it. His provision. He, be, be more focused on the spiritual than the physical. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6 through 3. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these other things will be, be provided. Get our eyes off what the world's focused on and get it on to eternal things. And then have the right response to those who accept it. Pour your life into the hungry and don't spend all your energies trying to reach someone who's become hardened against the gospel. Pray for them, share with them, but if they continue to reject, you need to understand that there's other people in the world that need the gospel and we need to go to them. 